This is Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature, with Michael Elliott. Welcome to Open Book Season 2, Episode 12, How to Read Ted Hughes and Seamus Heaney. I'm Michael Elliott, Associate Professor of English at the University of Calgary. Today's topic is my first double author episode on the late 20th century poets Ted Hughes, 1930-1998, to and Seamus Heaney, 1939-2013. to Let's begin today with biographies of the two poets, first Hughes and then Heaney, before we go into readings of their poems. Those who've heard my episode on Philip Larkin will know that Hughes became the UK's Poet Laureate in late 1984, a post that he held until his death in 1998. It was a controversial elevation of a man who many blamed for the 1963 suicide of his first wife, the brilliant American poet and novelist Sylvia Plath. A feminist icon, Plath's career was burdened by her marriage to a man who engaged in serial affairs with other women. The story of Hughes and Plath's marriage is a lot more complex than that. Heather Clark's most recent comprehensive biography, Red Comet, is the place to start. After Plath's death, Hughes notoriously edited and reordered her journals, unforgivably destroying the final volume of them. In his own career, Hughes was known for his animal poetry. The Hawk in the Rain was his first published collection in 1957, and Crow, a later collection from 1970, focused on this intelligent bird so ubiquitous in world mythologies. The Thought Fox, which we'll read in a moment, is a poem about poetry that originates in nature. Hughes also wrote extensively for children, including The Iron Man and How the Whale Became, two marvelous examples on themes of resilience and empathy. But his poetry and other work for adults has no happy endings. In 1998, Hughes published Birthday Letters, a collection of 88 poems about his relationship with Plath, and he died later that year of cancer. The most important fact about Seamus Heaney's life and career is his Irish identity. The oldest of nine children, born on a farm in Northern Ireland, Heaney wrote about his experience as a Catholic in the Protestant colony ruled by the British. It was, and remains, one of the last vestiges of their overseas empire. Heaney's poetry is, if you'll forgive the cliché, rooted in the land of County Wicklow on the east coast of Ireland of his family's farm in the north, of the ancient bodies that are excavated from bogs and their imagined experiences, as we'll see in a moment when we read Punishment. In 1966, Heaney published his first of 12 poetry collections, Death of a Naturalist. Its descriptions of a blacksmith's anvil, quote, horned as a unicorn, is typical of Heaney's ability to see the extraordinary in the everyday. In 1972, Heaney moved south to the Republic of Ireland because of the violent clashes and tensions between Catholics and Protestants in the north. 
Heaney's international reputation grew with his poetic output. He held teaching posts at Harvard and Oxford universities, and in 1995, he became the fourth Irishman to earn the Nobel Prize for Literature after Shaw, Yeats, and Beckett. The prize committee cited, quote, his works of lyrical beauty and ethical depth, which exalt everyday miracles and the living past. We are actually going to read these four poems by Heaney and Hughes in a slightly unconventional order. Which is to say, we're going to begin with Punishment by Seamus Heaney, then move to Hawk Roosting by Ted Hughes, then look at the second poem by Ted Hughes, which is The Thought Fox, and finally return to Heaney with Digging. Yes, it is a little unconventional to read in this order, I acknowledge, but you'll just have to trust me that it will thematically all work out well in the end. So let us begin with Punishment. This is actually one poem among others that Heaney wrote about the bodies of prehistoric peoples that were actually preserved for reasons of science that frankly escape me, preserved quite perfectly in bogs. These are wetlands that consist of a great deal of decayed plant material called peat, P-E-A-T, which actually occurs in uh, Heaney's other poem, Digging, but let's not talk about that yet. What matters, as I say, is that the bogs have the conditions that preserve a body through centuries without decay. So, as the footnote tells us, in 1951, there was the peat-stained body of a girl who had been alive uh, in the late first century. So this is 1900 years before she was excavated, uh, living among the Germanic tribes in what is now modern-day Germany. The girl had been sacrificed by her tribe because of the crime she committed of adultery, or at least so we think. Uh, And the other details that are important are in the footnote. It also tells you that she had a collar around her neck, that her head had been partially shaved off, that she was only 14 years old at the time of her execution, and that she had been weighed down by birch branches and a very large stone. The other interpretive detail that the footnote uh, provides for us is the information that um, so-called betraying sisters, which appear in this poem in line 38, uh, among the Irish population, were often publicly humiliated and punished in similar analogous ways, not involving murder, but involving a public exhibition and a ridicule of them for so-called keeping company with British soldiers, which is a euphemism for sleeping with the British. Anyhow, let us uh, read the poem, shall we, from start to finish, and then we can do some close reading. Here is Punishment by Seamus Heaney. I can feel the tug of the halter at the nape of her neck, the wind on her naked front. It blows her nipples to amber beads. It shakes the frail rigging of her ribs. 
I can see her drowned body in the bog, the weighing stone, the floating rods and boughs, under which at first she was a barked sapling that is dug up, oak bone, brain firkin, her shaved head like a stubble of black corn, her blindfold a soiled bandage, her noose a ring to store the memories of love. Little adulteress, before they punished you, you were flaxen-haired, undernourished, and your tar-black face was beautiful. My poor scapegoat, I almost love you, but would have cast, I know, the stones of silence. I am the artful voyeur of your brain's exposed and darkened combs, your muscles webbing and all your numbered bones, I who have stood dumb when your betraying sisters, called in tar, wept by the railings, who would connive in civilized outrage, yet understood the exact and tribal intimate revenge. I suppose one of the important uh, tensions or contrasts in this poem comes right there at the end, the di division in line 42 and 44 between civilized and tribal. What the speaker is trying to do there is set up a division or distance between the present moment, which is uh, a moment of, of, of artful voyeurism, uh, this, this moment currently of apparent civilization and distant barbarity, if you see what I'm getting at. This is why I suppose the modern analogy of the betraying sisters in line 38 who are um, being punished uh, for their giving comfort to the British are an echo of the Germanic tribes' vengeance against one of their own. And so I, the speaker, who is uh, conscious enough of his... I suppose, moral inadequacy, uh, moral bankruptcy. He's conscious enough of it in order to say, look, I really, I, I feel things like love toward you, but I know that I would have been a silent witness. I would have uh, cast the stones of silence in that memorable line, which is a reference, as the footnote tells you, to um, the Gospel of John, when Christ says, he that is without sin among you, let him cast first cast a stone at her, an adulteress who is being punished. So that's one of the contrasts, right, between love slash sympathy and silence. So he knows that that is wrong. And also he, that he would connive in civilized outrage. And yet, so he would feel like this is outrageous. This is terrible that they would punish such a person in this way. And yet he would understand the need for this kind of tribal revenge. Partly, at least, I suppose, because he would have been part of the tribe, and as he is presently, as an Irishman, part of the tribe that simply allows for these public humiliations to carry on. That's why he says he compares the silence, the stones of silence, to the dumbness that is the silence of, from his own mouth. In line 37, I have stood dumb while your sisters wept. That's another tension, by the way. So there are two tensions in the final two stanzas, dumb and wept and civilized and tribal. 
but I've started at the end and we should probably go back to the beginning and talk about the original setup and some of the uh, some of the other tensions and some of the other images that are coming all the way through this poem. So initially, the, the other parallel I can see is line, uh, stanza one and stanza three, right? We have I can feel and I can see. So... What he's doing in both of these stanzas and all the way through the beginning of this, the first half of this poem, really until the end of line 22, he's talking about her in the third person. He's talking about her as an, well, she is an object in front of him. Uh, He has come to see an exhibition of her body. How do I know that? I suppose it was really line 36, all your numbered bones, which suggests that she is archaeologically laid out in a sort of museum setting. That's not my only hint. I suppose, to be frank, it's also contextual knowledge. It's just knowledge that these bodies were put into museums, that this is one among many, many bog bodies that were brought up. By the way, if you want to spend a ghastly hour on on Google image search, go right ahead. You can see why, for example, her head is a stubble of black corn and later on, line 27, she has a tar black face. It's because the conditions of these bogs is so acidic and so other chemical conditions I don't understand, uh, did have this effect on the human skin of effectively tanning the uh, human flesh into this kind of very blackened uh, hue. Anywho, uh, we were talking about the initial stanza. So I can feel the tug and I can see her drowned body. So he is imagining what it would have been like to be there at that moment. And he is empathizing with her what it would have felt like to be pulled by the neck, to be exposed to the elements, to be shivering, to be freezing cold, and to be then cast into a bog and weighed down with these rods and this uh, this stone which are going to just hold you under the surface until you die if that isn't horrifying enough it gets worse because the which she's actually blindfolded and although she has a noose around her neck there was no mark of strangulation on the neck says the note And so she asphyxiated underneath the surface of the bog. Now, the speaker here actually refers to a couple of details. First of all, he's talking about the, uh, going back to the the rods and boughs in line 12. He then uses the metaphor of her as a barked sapling. That is, because she's a sapling, because she is a young person, she's barked because she is just mature enough, is supposed to be sexually mature at at 14. Uh, then all of her bones are described as in in these other terms of, of of wooden materials, oak bone, brain firkin, for example. So a firkin is a little wooden casket, usually with treasure of some kind or something precious. And in this case, it's actually her brain. So her brain, the, the top of her head has been removed by the excavators. The noose I mentioned earlier, this is a curious image that is probably one of the most affecting images of the description. This is line 20. Her noose, a ring to store the memories of love. That is perhaps as close 
as the speaker, is capable of getting to her interior self, her interiority. What was it like to be her? We know what it, what it was like, well, we can imagine, given his descriptions, what it was like to experience the punishment. But then there's this memories of love uh, detail. The assumption being, of course, that if she's being punished for adultery, um, that this is uh, the result of her loving uh, affection and loving feelings for the person with whom she committed it, who incidentally doesn't seem to have been punished in the same way. Such are the double standards of male and female behavior. So... The point of the um, of the ring to store the memories of love transition is because we have this movement toward her interiority. We also have this sudden shift, and I didn't notice it until, frankly, I'd read this poem a few times, to a direct address to her, calling her in line 23, little adulteress. And he's used the word love, of course, in line 22, but he's going to use it again, line 29, I almost love you. I feel like that is similar, or at least analogous. It reminded me, I suppose, of lines 1 and line 9. I can feel the tug. I can see her drowned body. I almost love you. That almost, by the way, is a devastating withdrawal of his agency. Because as he goes on to say, in the bits that we've looked at already. He is an artful voyeur. He is simply watching all of this happen, and he would have done so were he there. I like that line, actually, artful voyeur. That seems to me, actually, to really encapsulate the entire essence of, or at least the spirit, I guess, of, of, this, uh, of this poem. A voyeur, of course, is someone who simply witnesses an event, usually of a lurid nature, violent or sexual, but artful. Artful, I suppose, means that he is actually going to create art out of her suffering, out of this horrendous activity, out of her exposed brain and her muscles and her bones. So there's something like inappropriate about him looking at her as a voyeur, so exposed, so exposed to all eyes that look on her, the way that she was looked at by all of the fellow members of the tribe who uh, exacted this punishment, to whom he compares himself, in whose company he puts himself. And now he here he is at this exhibition of her body in this museum, looking at her and is similarly artful. Artful also because he creates a poem out of it. So cast your mind now back to that final tension at the end of Heaney's punishment, civilization and tribal intimate revenge. That tension actually also informs the next poem we're going to look at, which is Ted Hughes's Hawk Roosting. Also a form of an artful voyeur, someone who actually meets out punishments, uh, who is sort of lord of all that he surveys and decides uh, what is going to occur in this land, in this landscape, rather, that he is, is surveying. And yet, and yet he's using the most, some of the most uh, sophisticated Latin, uh, Latinate diction for his word choices. It's all in the first person. It's all the speaker is the hawk. So let's look at actually how it happens. And I think that the point of that is that it really nicely summarizes that uh, dichotomy between civilization and, and uh, tribal violence. 
or rather uh, just general barbarity. This is Hawk Roosting by Ted Hughes. I sit in the top of the wood, my eyes closed, in action. No falsifying dream between my hooked head and hooked feet, or in sleep rehearse perfect kills and eat. The convenience of the high trees, the air's buoyancy and the sun's ray are of advantage to me, and the earth's face upward for my inspection. My feet are locked upon the rough bark. It took the whole of creation to produce my foot, my each feather. Now I hold creation in my foot, or fly up and revolve it all slowly. I kill where I please, because it is all mine. There is no sophistry in my body. My manners are tearing off heads the allotment of death. For the one path of my flight is direct through the bones of the living. No arguments assert my right. The sun is behind me. Nothing has changed since I began. My eye has permitted no change. I am going to keep things like this. This is uh, a pretty extraordinary poem for a lot of reasons. One of the one of the reasons, really, is that like this hawk is looking down uh, in a sort of magisterial lord of, of of the woods, lord of all he surveys, and he is going to keep it all just this way. No arguments assert my. I love how that line about the sun is behind me, and that means it has a double, nice double meaning, right? Both the sun is uh, at my back, but also the sun is behind me. The sun has my back. All of creation, all of the universe is behind me. It wants this. It wants this, and I am its agent. Okay, I'm, I'm doing it again now. I'm starting at the end of the poem, and I should be starting at the beginning. So let's go through this a little more sequentially. So he sits in the top of the wood, his eyes closed. It looks, you would think, it's very simple language at the beginning, and you would think just for a second, ah, he's, he's, he's dreaming or sleeping, he's th- rehearsing perfect kills and eating and so on. But... He, he repudiates that, or he refutes that. He says, no, no falsifying dream. I don't, between my head and my feet, there's no, there's no such thing. It's just the beginning, by the way, of no this, no that. No falsifying dream, line two. No sophistry in my body, line 15. No arguments assert my right, line 20. So it's like, I just want to put to rest or put, uh, do away with these misperceptions you might be having. This is part of the sort of overall tone, by the way, of like, of, of, of knowingness or of correction or of, or of, uh, of declarations that sort of do away with misperceptions. He's like, no, let me tell you the way things are. The way things are in this opening stanza is for him to simply say, look, I am biding my time. I am ready. And everything is, although my eyes are closed, I am not sleeping. I'm not rehearsing and and planning. I am merely biding my time and I'm waiting for the right moment. 
And then you have this really odd word. Frankly, this really did it for me. This really sent me down a path of the Oxford English Dictionary exploration that made me actually unlock the, I think, the curious tone of the, the Latinate diction I was speaking of. Uh, and the whole, whole way through, it's this line five where he says the convenience of the high trees. Now, <laughs> convenience to us usually means something like, I don't know, uh, like a convenience store. Something that is for our ease, something that makes our, our lives convenient. We might talk about the, the convenient location of something because it, it, say, gratifies what we need. Anyway, and actually, convenient actually means something a little bit more complicated. It means, it means I, I was just really struck by it, because it's a strange word to see in a poem. Uh, and so, convenience in the Oxford English Dictionary means something more like suitability, but the Latin root, uh, it means, it comes from the, the Latin fra- verb con, convenire, which means to, to unite or to meet things together. To, to conjoin things. This is where we get the, the verb convene. If you convene people together or if you hold a convention, it means that all, the, all these things are coming together. So you, the convenience is actually in the rest of that stanza, the air, the sun, and the earth, because notice how all of them are oriented toward his um, toward his body. So the air's buoyancy is sort of moving upward toward him, the sun downward from behind him. Again, the, the sun is behind me. We're going to see that line again, or that, that repetition in 21. And then the earth's face is upward from my inspection. All of this to his advantage. In some ways, actually, this is either spectacularly delusional or, or really inspiring. He sincerely thinks and believes that all of these things, the air, the sun, and the earth, are uh, created for his, toward his ends and for his good. And wait, it gets even better because his feet, okay, we've seen his feet in line three. His feet are locked upon the bark, so he's sitting at the top of a tree, obviously. Now, the next thing he says is that he is, in fact, the culmination of all of creation, capital C creation, that is everything that has existed, has ever existed, is culminating in him. It took the whole of creation to produce my foot, my each feather, every one of them. It's actually not, evolutionarily, it's actually not that wrong. Feathers are really spectacularly sophisticated and complex, and they're one of the the remnants, uh, birds, of course, are one of the remnants of of the dinosaurs, the ones that that weren't killed 65 million years ago. So the word creation uh, is two things, I suppose. One is, as I suggested, it's like the act of creation, but it is also the noun, so it's a verb. It's also the noun creation. I hold creation in my foot, that's kind of like, uh, it's a bit of a double meaning one there, sort of like the sun is behind me, I hold it in my foot because creation culminated in my foot. <laughs> it's a little bit, uh, the word there is bathos, B-A-T-H-O-S, it's sort of this, um, I suppose, this sort of undignified, unbefitting uh, culmination of a grand event. It's, we might uh, use the word bathetic, B-A-T-H-E-T-I-C. Anyway, not a word you need to know. The point is that he... He holds all of creation in his foot, or he flies up and revolves it all slowly. I love the word revolve. Those of you who 
heard last week's episode about Philip Larkin or the preceding episode uh, with an Arundel tomb, the plainness hardly involves the eye. The word involve, revolve is just another variation on this. So the Latin, uh, the Latin uh, verb volvere, which means to roll, if you circle about something is what revolve means. If you to revolve literally means to re-roll, to roll again. Now, volvere means roll, as I said in Latin. So it actually, technically, it's talking about a scroll. If you're reading on a scroll rather than a codex, a codex is not uh, invented until, until later. That is, a, a book is what a codex means, the sort of form that you... Uh, maybe reading this poem in now, if you have the print copy of the uh, of the Norton anthology, or you are scrolling up and down in your uh, print uh, or on your electronic screen. Anyway, to to revolve means to really re-roll a scroll, to refer to return in speech or thought. Um, he is literally revolving. That is, he's rethinking, he's re-examining, and he's also physically, it's another meaning, circling around it all. Now, it is creation, the noun. Okay, so I said earlier, it's, it's a noun all the way through, actually, it's never really a verb, but creation, I said, is, uh, capital C creation, is the creation of the earth, and it's also the earth and all of the things that were created by, capital C, creation, if that makes any sense. If you see what I mean, he revolves it, he looks at creation, or rather, the created world. And what does he decide when he circles about it? which, by the way, is sort of a, an image that kind of reminds me of, uh, if you've heard the W.B. Yeats episode, it's a sort of like the, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. It's sort of circling around and around. It's another bird flying in a circle. But back to this poem, line 14, he says, I kill where I please because it, creation, is all mine. This is another one of those lines that really sounds like it has this magisterial um, tone of like, I, I am lord of everything. I kill where I please because he owns it all, everything he looks at. And then begins this, this series of uh, kind of re refutations of things that he is not. Look, I am not about fancy words, although I've been using words with fancy Latin roots, etc., that, uh, well, <laughs> that at least I'm, I am identifying. There's no sophistry. That's a clever but specious argument, as the note tells you. Uh, my body, my actions are not about fancy wordplay. They're not about being mannerly. I tear heads off, okay? I am a, like, violent, horrible, not horrible, I am a violent um, like creature, and it's a moment like that when he's tearing heads off. This is the animal barbarity that he is presenting, despite its barbarity. He's presenting in this kind of very civilized diction. The allotment of death, for example, that's the kind of decision about, say, killing of prisoners that a king or, or an emperor would make. This language, also in line 20, about no arguments assert my right, is very majestic. You've possibly heard the phrase, the divine right of kings. This is this notion that a king has the right to do what he pleases because 
uh, he has God's endorsement. Finally, you have this uh, conclusion in which he announces that uh, not only that nothing has changed since I began in 22 and 23, my eye has permitted no change. It sounds like in some ways he is arrogating or taking upon himself the uh, decision that no change will be permitted, that he will not permit it. And so his eye, what he is looked, what he is looking upon, once he opens his eyes, which were closed in the opening line, is a world that may not change because he does not permit it. The eye there, of course, is not merely the individual hawk, but uh, the hawk as a representative of his kind of all hawks. Finally, there are three lines that really stand out for their simplicity of um, syntax uh, and simplicity of language and sort of directness uh, that seem to be connected. The first is, of course, the opening one. I sit in the top of the wood, my eyes closed, period. So it's a line that is also a sentence. You have a sort of simplicity and directness to that. It's just a description of things. The, the next one you have is uh, line 14 in the midst of the fourth stanza. I kill where I please because it is all mine. And there is, again, the sort of directness and simplicity. He's talking there about the state of decisions. First, the first one is about the state that he's in. The second is about the sort of dominion that he has over this world. And finally, the last one is the last line of the whole poem. Also begins with I, and also, also a complete sentence. I am going to keep things like this. So in that last one, it's a shift from the state of things as they are to the state of things as he intends them to be. And I think there's no reason to doubt that this decision that he has made is going to prevail. Finally, before we turn the page and look at the next uh, Ted Hughes poem, I'm just going to say that the similarity between this and punishment are both that, of course, we've got sp- Well, in this case, the speaker is the hawk, but we also have the poet. The poet, Ted Hughes, like the poet Seamus Heaney, uh, the poet imagining what it is like to be something quite different from who he, the poet, actually is. So Hughes is imagining, what is it like to be a hawk? What does the hawk say to himself? How does he feel? What does it feel like to be a hawk? Just as Heaney, who admittedly in punishment was making a great deal more about my own complicity, my own silence as a witness, etc., etc., but he was doing quite a lot in the first half about imagining himself into that experience. And that's one of the, the most powerful things about poetry. You're capable, or literature in general, is this power of empathy, this power for you to step outside of your narrow, tiny, particular historical experience, even your species experience, and see what would it be like. Of course, it's a projection, right? But, you know, forget that, suspend your disbelief, okay? And imagine this is what it is like. This is how it feels to be a hawk. And so, finally, ultimately, it is not about bathos. It is not about reduction. It is about dignity. It is about the grandeur and the suitability of these uh, very, very elevated sentiments.
even though they appear in a bird. Let us now turn to another of Ted Hughes' animal poems, The Thought Fox. I'll just read it from start to finish rather than giving you a long preamble, and then we'll go look at some of the lines, shall we? This is The Thought Fox. I imagine this midnight moment's forest. Something else is alive beside the clock's loneliness and this blank page where my fingers move. Through the window, I see no star. Something more near, though deeper within darkness, is entering the loneliness. Cold, delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig, leaf. Two eyes serve a movement that now, and again now, and now, and now, sets neat prints into the snow between trees, and warily a lame shadow lags by stump and in hollow of a body that is bold to come across clearings, an eye, a widening, deepening greenness, brilliantly, concentratedly, coming about its own business till with a sudden sharp hot stink of fox it enters the dark hole of the head. The window is starless still. The clock ticks. The page is printed. The last line of this poem gives you a clue about what has been happening. The whole poem is a poem about writing a poem. (laughs) The poem of writing this very poem itself, the thought fox. It's about having a thought of a fox. And the whole poem is fused with all this language that you can see of the imaginative activity that is writing a poem. The very first line, the very second word, imagine. I imagine this midnight moment's forest. Lots of lovely alliteration there. But he's also imagining this The forest that surrounds this midnight moment. If you see what I mean, this is a midnight moment. There's a clock, there's a blank page, my fingers are moving across it with a pen, and I look through a window and see no star. So it is utter darkness. It's a starless night. But he imagines something else being alive. Something, repeated line six and line two, something more near is entering the loneliness. The loneliness, again, repeated uh, between line eight uh, and uh, line, line three, the clock's loneliness. So there's loneliness at his table where a clock is ticking and this blank page is there. And something deeper within the darkness under the sun, starless sky is entering this loneliness. What is that something, you wonder? Well, wait for it. It's going to be the fox. Now, the the question, of course, is, is this a real fox? That's not the question. It's a question, right? But it's pretty, well, it's pretty debatable. You can actually see that it's quite probable that this is an entirely thought-up fox. This is an invented fox, but it's also a fox that is thought itself. If that makes sense, it means that thought is like a fox. Thought moves delicately like the snow. It touches on things. It 
it has eyes that that uh, lead itself forward and then this lovely diction cho- choice of uh, of now and now and now setting the neat prints one after the other the words themselves on the page the thought that intentionally puts those words in that order is like analogous to the the, the fox moving in this in this um, uh, undulating movement across the snow my favorite, one of my favorite words in this whole poem is, is there in line 11. Uh, two eyes serve a movement. Why would he choose the word serve? Well, one explanation might be that if you, if you have something that serves for something else, it means in some ways it's a substitution for that thing. So the eyes, but in this case, I think it's probably more like the eyes uh, lead toward, they're actually for the purpose of its movement. Where it looks is where it goes. I also really love that, uh, the tension that comes in the next stanza and that, that contrast between the shadow that's sort of warily and lame and lagging behind it, uh, but the body is not wary at all. It's bold, it's moving forward. And the eye, which is there in uh, line 17, which is repeated from line 11, the eye is this beautiful image, a beautiful alliteration in the next uh, 17, or rather 18, a widening, deepening greenness. So it's a little unclear whether that is referring to or descriptive of the eye or of the body. It's probably the eye. The eye of the poet's imagination is about to come up, I suppose, in some ways through the, the dark hole of the head in line 22. But in any event, the eye is both widening and deepening, isn't it? Because as the pupil dilates, you can see more clearly things within darkness. And yet it's also a greenness. So green, as you might recall from the episode about Dylan Thomas, means a lot of things, but it means a kind of nature, spirit, or power. Then in 19, again, brilliantly, concentratedly, we have again other images of like the brilliant eye, which can concentrate and also dilate and, 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 and lar- get larger and smaller, etc., etc. Coming about its own business, sort of following its own, do, its own volition. And then you have this dramatic incursion uh, and, this, and this really sort of unpleasant image of a, <laughs> the hot stink of fox entering the dark hole, sudden, abruptly, uh, sort of moving from this distance, being off in the distance, you know, coming through a clearing, etc., behind delicately sort of leaping over and getting closer and closer and closer and closer from distance to this intimate proximity. So it goes through the eye, not literally, obviously, uh, and, this, and then you suddenly, abruptly, in the penultimate line, have this return to the calm setting of the present. This with a window is starless still, so that's a return uh, back to line five of the starless, through the window I see no star. The clock again, which we've seen in line three. The page, the same, the very page uh, that was there in line four, this blank page is no longer blank. And the last word that I'm going to pull out for you is this word dark. So we saw dark before. Something more near, etc., deeper within darkness is entering the loneliness. There's a darkness, an utter darkness of a, of a starless night outside, 
but the dark hole of the head is saying that there's a darkness of the landscape and that becomes that becomes concentrated and 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 uh intently uh focused that's the word i want <laughs> on the through the eye so you move from landscape into mind the mind and the thought there's also this image uh which you might uh, you might know from hamlet when uh, horatio asks where he sees his father uh, when he's um when he's imagining him and hamlet says in my mind's eye horatio so when i'm imagining a thing i see it in my mind's eye and so there is also probably a suggestion for me i think in that moment of uh that, that this is something that he has both seen but largely has imagined. And it's this lovely analogy for, or allegory, if you prefer, for what poetry writing consists of. Finally, we're going to return to Seamus Heaney. And the reason now I think will become clear that the poem Digging is similar to The Thought Fox because it too is a poem about the writing of poetry. However, it's quite different because this is Seamus Heaney telling his own story about his decision to become a poet and how that decision contrasts with the decisions of other occupations that his uh, forebears have decided to undertake. So, digging. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean rasping sound, when the spade sinks into gravelly ground. My father, digging. I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up twenty years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug. The shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade. Just like his old man, my grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's Bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf. Digging. The cold smell of potato mold. The squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head. But I've no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. We could begin with the alliteration in the second line, snug as a gun. The repetition, by the way, of lines one and two, and uh, there again in line 29 to 30, is this kind of bookends on either end of this poem. What, un not unlike uh, Ted Hughes, uh, sitting at a table 
holding a pen uh, with a blank page in front of him, looking, like Hughes, out a window. And what he sees out that window, though, is different. What he sees is his father digging. He looks and sees his father digging into gravelly ground, and then he sees him come up 20 years away, line 7. So this is now a shift from the present moment into a memory of 20 years previous, when Heaney slash the speaker was a child. And he was digging... And you notice here the shift who he was digging there in line nine. So we've shifted into the past tense. We had the present, the, the spade sinks into gravelly ground, but he, that's uh, the present tense in line four, but now he was digging. Similarly, this, the pen rests. So those, those are the present tense, but now we have shifts into the past. That's why I say there's a, there's a, um, these are both shifts into the memory that's bookended by two present moments. And continuing with the past tense, his father, he describes his father's boot on the lug, which is uh, projecting outward from the shaft. As the note tells you, this is how you shove or push the blade of the uh, shovel into into the uh, into the ground when he buried the bright edge deep and he's and he's planting uh, potatoes so if that isn't irish enough for you to be <laughs> planting potatoes he then has a memory a further memory of his grandfather digging up the dried peat moss so the peat moss is this domestic fuel as the Handy note tells you that uh, gets dug up. So both of uh, both men are doing things in the earth in order to, you know, planting potatoes to harvest peat. They're creating sustenance for their families. They're living off the land. They're creating warmth and fuel for their homes. Uh, and these though that's important. We'll come back to that in a moment. But these are things that emerge from, that depend upon the land that they occupy. You then get this lovely memory of the boyhood of the speaker when he brings his grandfather milk. Uh, he drinks it and then he immediately resumes. Uh, and you have quite uh, similar to Hughes in the Thought Fox, where you have and now and now and now. You have going down and down for the good turf, this repeated action of digging of returning. So temporally, where do we situate that second last stanza? Well, okay, the first thing I noticed is that this this expression, the cold smell of potato mold, the cold smell is a combination both of a feeling uh, of, of uh, sensation, but also of, uh, of scent. So that's a kind of uh, crossing of two senses. The term for that technically is, is synesthesia, when you have two uh, aesthetic senses that synthesized together. Uh, the squelch and slap, nice alliteration of soggy Peat, the curt cuts of an edge, lots more alliterative uh, uh, language here, through living roots. So you had roots uh, rooted out tall tops in line 12. Awaken in my head. Of course, roots here also means uh, in the figurative sense that he has, he, the speaker, has roots in these preceding generations, in this sort of family tree. But he also recognizes his division, his separation from them. 
He does not have a spade. He has departed from their precedence. So the question then, I suppose, at the end is, and he says, I will dig with the pen instead. So this is a decision that he's making and he's uh, um, elucidating that he is going to separate from these precedents and he's going to use his pen the way that they used their spades. He doesn't have a spade. He chooses not to take up a spade. So how is writing poetry like like potato planting and peat harvesting. In some ways, they altered the land with marks. They created sustenance uh, and and uh, warmth. And in his case, he's going to change the place. He's very situated in the place of Ireland, the land that he occupies, that he his family has uh, has lived upon and and lived from for generations. He's going to alter it with his words, with his descriptions. That is how he's going to dig down into the land. He's also going to create warmth and sustenance for the spirit from the poetic ideas that he writes. So, in review, Hughes and Heaney both concern themselves with the origins of poetry and its relationship to the landscape, and with barbaric and tribal violence beneath the veneer of civility. Now that you've read your way through these four poems, return and reread them in order to find other tendrils of connection among them in the order that I've put forward to you or in an order that you just determine for yourself. It's really your decision. That's my goal throughout these episodes, to take you through my closer and comparative readings so that you can do them for yourself. You've been listening to Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature with Michael Elliott. This ends the second season and begins the summer sabbatical, a time of reading for the sheer pleasure of reading. Hilary Mantel, P.G. Woodhouse, and the Spanish novelist Javier Marias are on my list. It's also a time to reflect on future topics for this podcast. Alongside new texts that I'm teaching, Should I have episodes on broader topics, like how to close-read poetry, or how to empathize with unlikable characters, or how literary critics turn ideas into arguments? So I'm throwing open the doors to you, dear listener. Tell me what you need, what you would listen to, even beyond your course requirements maybe. Tell me what works and what doesn't about the show's format. I've never been more open to constructive criticism and new ideas. I hope you'll keep subscribing and I hope you'll consider rating and reviewing the show in Apple Podcasts. That helps others discover Open Book. So, until we meet again, you can search me up in the usual places. It should turn up my blog if you spell my surname, U-L-L-Y-O-T, or go straight there by typing j.mp slash Elliot. You can also find me on Instagram, YouTube, and Goodreads in descending order of regularity. And then there's old-fashioned email, Elliot at ucalgary, that's U-C-A-L-G-A-R-Y dot C-A. The music from this episode is courtesy of the Open Goldberg Variations Project and performed by Kimiko Ishizaka. (laughs) 